Yeah. Got it. Yes. Good morning again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good to see you, Dr. Kumi. This is the first of many, hopefully, discussions and dialogues we'll have around film and culture and representation. And I'm really excited about this. Ah, me too. <laughs> so my 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 first question for you is yeah. uh just give you a give give a little bit of your background. I'll give a little bit of my background yeah. so our audience know what we're talking well, who we are. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great place to start. So I just speaking to my autobiography, um, I am the first son of um, two Korean immigrants. Um, they had, my, my father and my mother had met in the U.S. My mother, through a um, nursing opportunity, um, post-war nursing opportunity in Germany, and then having lived there and worked there for about five years, then immigrated to the wow. U.S. And so she took a she took, I don't, I don't think a very traditional route to the U.S. <clears throat> um, met my father in New York City and got married um, and then had a family. And so I was born in, uh, people are always surprised when I say this, but I was born in the Bronx <laughs> uh, in New York. <laughs> um, grew up in Queens. And then wow. we did a little bit of moving around. We moved out to the West Coast when I was about seven and then um, did all of my, uh, the rest of my elementary school, middle school and high school in the Bay Area. So I moved around a little bit in the Bay Area, but did all that there and then came down for college um, when, yeah, obviously when, when um, I finished high school and did college in Southern California and stayed. Found a life here, married my wife, had kids, and then um, sort of rooted ourselves here until we left for China. And we lived there for almost 10 years, uh, working there on mission there. And um, that was exciting and that was different. And so we can speak at some, some point in time about uh, maybe even my children and, and their identity and their, their intercultural identity okay. because they have both Korean, American, and Chinese identities also all mixed together because of our time there. Mm -hmm. And have been back in the U.S. This is uh, year six of being back from China. So that's a little bit of my, my history, my personal history, um, both in the U.S. and overseas. Um, Professionally, a lot of my work is uh, centered on intercultural work. So um, again, the work that I did in China was um, uh, connecting our university to opportunities and relationships in the region. And again, working interculturally in that sense, but also developing graduate programs for Americans to go and study and work and live in China for a year. And so helping Americans of all walks, of all backgrounds, to have that opportunity to, to engage in that intercultural work as well, too. So I've been involved in the DEI space, um, done some consulting in that area. Um, I've also been involved with, again, um, international studies programs, uh, TESOL programs. Um, I'm uh, currently, I've uh, taken a position 
um, as president of a TESOL organization in the UK. Um, so continue to do a lot of that intercultural work even now. Um, professionally, I work at the university as a professor. Um, I work in, in the leadership and organizational change space. I work um, with, with doctoral students and I teach doctoral level courses right now. Um, but um, two of the courses I really, really love, one of the courses is focused on intercultural communication. Um, and the other course, which you've had a chance to uh, be a guest um, lecturer at. And the second course is an Asia research trip where we take doctoral students to China, to Korea, to other places in Asia uh, to give them that intercultural experience as well, too. So it's a little bit about myself. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. I love it. I love it. Um, and it, one interesting fact, I, I, I mentioned this when I was a guest speaker, was sending you something on LinkedIn mm -hmm. about in 2013. I think I was pretty new on LinkedIn. I don't even remember what that was, but at that time it felt important for me to send to the people on my network. And mm -hmm. I sent it to you. And when I went, when I in when I think I wrote you, when you wrote me, I looked and said, wait, I know him? Like <laughs> it was it was odd because at that point I was I had never I had wait, I didn't even I probably just started community college at that point. Okay. So wow. using that to dive into my background, I was born and raised in Cameroon, mm -hmm. born in the city of Bamenda. My parents moved back to Sapga, which is in the village of Babanki, and uh, that is Northwest province of Cameroon. And mm -hmm. I, I was there until the age of 13. And I, my, my parents wanted me to go to secondary school. So the, for them, the best place for me to be was to be with somebody with my uncle. So I moved about eight hours, nine hours away, mm. which is at that point in time, bad roads and everything was at least a day and a half or a day, a full day, day and a half. Um, no, when I say day and a half, that's 24 up to 36 hours. So it's a day, it's a day. Like I would leave a full, I would leave uh, uh, day if I'm going to my parents, I'll leave day in the morning very early and sometimes I won't get to my parents until about midnight um, depending on the roads but if the roads are fine it's maybe a six to seven hour trip mm. without if the roads were fine and there were no issues on the road it should not, it would not be longer than an, mm. uh, no longer than an eight hour trip so mm. but I I moved far away Mm. At that point in time, I would go home once or twice a year, uh, which was really hard because it's like I grew up, I have brothers and sisters, and now I'm mm. almost alone, thrown into this big city, the capital of Cameroon, um, with yeah. just my uncle. So wow. learning the ropes in a new city at the age of 13, my uncle was a businessman, so he traveled mm. a lot. So I found mm. myself being by myself or a bunch of strangers. And usually these changes were his friends that were guys. So I, I found myself being the token girl all the time in a room or in a house of boys. And all of that has its own dynamics and it probably kind of formed me in, in some of the ways that I am today. Mm -hmm. uh, constantly, um, instead of worrying about my makeup and things, I would want to have conversations and 
go have discourse with with the boys because I thought they were more interesting. Just the way I grew up, being uh, I was the oldest of my uh, mom and dad. My dad had all the kids, but I was their oldest, and they were not the other kids were not around. So I felt like um, the second mom of the family, or at the same time. Uh, daddy's girl so I was kind of like daddy's girl spent a lot of time with my dad um it was great he was an older he was it was an older marriage in those in those days where arranged marriages was happening so my parents arranged marriage uh, my mom is pretty young she's she's my dad died a long time ago but there was at least 20 years difference between them or something or more yeah so um uh but it it my dad looks really young so it was hard to also tell um but it was a nice childhood i i really enjoyed my childhood and i enjoyed that growing up in a village in africa i had parents that my mom had elementary school education which today i can compare that to a high school diploma <laughs> and my dad also but they were they were very well learned for the time, the, the time that time period, they taught students a lot better. I, I, I think like people just learned better, even though they will have a high school diploma. They, it was almost like having a college degree. Then mm -hmm. my mom with a with a uh, um, elementary school certificate performed at the level of a high school, a mm -hmm. high schooler even today. Mm -hmm. um, so they did they, they raised us even in the village to be able to speak English read and write it wasn't perfect so I still make English mistakes but it was still a lot better than not having that groundwork at all um so I, it instilled in me the desire to learn instilled in me the desire to 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 travel because I le left home at 13 so I was I became super adventurous um moved here I back and forth for until I graduated high school, came back home, lived at home for a year, worked a few jobs, didn't pan out, nothing pan out. I'm very entrepreneurial. I started a farm, I started a nonprofit, I started like so I just kept starting things <laughs> until I moved to the United States, um, worked in Minnesota for a little bit, got mm -hmm. the code, moved to LA. Mm -hmm. And it was better in LA. The mm -hmm. goal moving to LA was to 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 be a filmmaker with oh. a relative. Yeah, that was one of the reasons besides the, mm -hmm. the warm weather. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, stayed stayed uh did that did the entertainment industry until 2021. But I had to shift focus because the things I was doing wasn't growing the way I wanted to grow. So I think one of the reasons I love the Woman King so much is because I always felt that I would be the first woman to make an African woman film, like a, mm -hmm. an African superhero woman. Mm -hmm. So somebody bit me to the punch. <laughs> 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 so I, moving out as a, a filmmaker, that not really panning out the way I wanted it to go. Yeah. I decided to go back to school and from 2013 all the way intense, I just studied, studied, studied until my graduation in 2022. Mm. So I did that while working, while doing the nonprofit um, organization and doing a lot of good work with the nonprofit. I stayed very busy, very mm. busy, which is maybe one of the reasons why I never, I'm not married because it's like, 
I I go to bed with my books and my computer. So, <laughs> so yeah, I felt like I was in a relationship with, with school. So yeah, that is generally my life. And I love intercultural. I love dialogues that have to do with the our differences, but the differences that are so unique that it makes us better people or, yeah. or, or it creates in us the dynamic that uh um that should unite us yeah. should unite us um so i love i love cultural stuff i always loved african um films growing up the nigerian films they were horribly made but the stories were so good <laughs> so good i today i don't think nigerian movies are as good as they used to be uh, the stories okay. are the more they they adopt technology and they adopt western styles of yeah. storytelling i feel that it's starting to lose lose its mm -hmm. own african story style telling yeah. even though you would see a movie with a boom right in 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 the screen but we won't care the yeah. story was so captivating that you didn't care about all the other technical mistakes so yeah i've always loved film and i'm i i see stories in film i see narratives in film so i'm happy that we have we share this interest That's and right. we can dive into all these areas That's including right. film That's right. yeah. now remind me you mentioned 2013 was the first time we connected yes can you, you didn't respond to me though. I was just, I think I was spamming people with something that <laughs> I have found that I thought was so interesting <laughs> and so good that everybody needed to know. So I was just like sending it out and I realized you were one of the people I sent it out to. That's and amazing. you probably looked at it and you were like, yeah, this is no good. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you, how did we get connected though? How did you have me on your list of people to send that out to? That is the story I will never know. I oh, probably went on LinkedIn and I just maybe searched people. Okay. I, I cannot tell you. Like, I have kind of gone through my head. I'm like, how? But I, I was in the entertainment industry. I wasn't in the in education mm -hmm. field mm -hmm. at that point. Yeah. So why is it that when I got to LinkedIn, I was sending people this? So maybe oh. when I started school, I had this interest to maybe follow professors and things so i started okay. connecting with professors i mm -hmm. cannot tell you why you <laughs> and how, how mm -hmm. i found your name and how we got connected we'll, but, we'll call it fate then <laughs> fate. we have to put it leave it to fate <laughs> and and i'm just guidance and divine time oh, wonderful yeah well, do you want to just start with maybe our general like impressions about the film before we get into yes. specific topics? Yes. Just general impressions. So you, why don't you start this time? What was your general feeling, your impression about the film? You talked about Nigerian films, like they're not necessarily well made, but the storylines are real good. What's your impression of this film in that regard? Um, overall, this film to me is very well made. Mm. Very, very well made. Mm. Um, I the, My first review of the film just sitting in there I I was looking at the culture just saying okay I know everybody says they're making African films but as an African what is in this movie that mm -hmm. makes me feel like I I am at home I mm -hmm. I belong in this movie mm -hmm. and I was just watching and I would see I saw I saw the clothing 
and I saw the uniqueness of the clothing. I can tell you the mm. wardrobe is a very Yoruba wardrobe. Like I did even say some of these things in my other podcast. Mm. It's a very Yoruba material. Ah. And then the, the way they tie the wrap, yeah. I can relate to that. The pants huh. of the wrap is different because it's not, it's that's new and I, it makes sense. It's sensible dressing for the film. Huh. Uh, but that little short thing, I, I growing up in the village when I when it was farm day, yeah, I looked like those women. Wow, I would throw like a dirty old thing on top, and I would do my wrapper, uh, and the wrapper was knee length. The wrapper was not long huh. because I wasn't dressed. When I was dressing up with a wrapper to go out, it would be long. If uh, I'm dressing up in a wrapper to go to the farm, it is short. Ah. because i need my leg movement Mobility. to be faster yeah right. so it's like tiny little things like that so i saw okay. that and i saw the, the 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 spirituality the african spirituality and i would and i was like okay i can relate to that i've seen that i've mm-hmm. seen people practicing that even as a christian mm-hmm. i know times in my family that we practice that so okay. generally i was very in tune with the movie Exactly. I was very impressed with the movie. Wow. From a cultural so, perspective. So there were, I mean, I noticed that as well too, a lot of colorful costuming. Um, one of the scenes that really stuck out to me was when they first showed the um the 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 city, right? The the panning of this in, you know, the the marching in of the Agogie, you know, that they're marching yeah. into the city. And everyone's putting their heads down, remember? And you know, that child was looking at them and you know, that respect that they were giving them. But yes. just looking at the city itself, it seemed like it was a number one, it was a walled city, it seemed like, right? So there seemed to be seemed to be some type of fortress, even. Um, and there was definitely um what you would normally call like development, right? Like, so there were yes. shops, there were restaurants, there were um, and I guess my my initial and again this is coming from a non-african perspective right completely non-african as a asian american my perspective on that was i was very surprised on the one hand and i i think i thought of ancient africa you know like pre-colonial africa as being just very much like village centered like there were no real outside okay so outside of cities like Cairo or like you know places in Egypt where they had you know obviously like pyramids and things like that um in most of Africa I imagine pre-colonial times that it was very much um, agricultural and very much flat like everything was flat um no real like uh, uh centralization in terms of either government or architecture or economy and that most people were it, it almost I almost had this feeling that Africa was very almost felt like very nomadic yes. almost, almost like Native Americans right Native American villages or like um like Mongolian villages right that were very nomadic like they grew very big right they were very big villages but there was no centrality to them right it was more decentralized and more in that sense more democratic right so non-hierarchical but when I saw the film what struck me was that it it looked more like maybe something I would see in like ancient China you know where there's a there's a walled city there's a gate there is 
this like processional, like, you know, that there's royalty, there is, you know, there are these structures that I normally would not associate with my view, my image or my thought or opinion um, pre-film about Africa. So how does how does how does that strike you? I, I agree. I agree. That is the image that the West has been fed, right? Yeah. That is the image yeah. that they have been fed. And I you can only go with what you know, what mm -hmm. you have you've grown up with and imagined and conceptualized or been told. I was an age in 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 a secondary school. I loved China Chinese history. I did Chinese history for high mm -hmm. school. Because I could relate to the history of the Chinese, I could see the similarities mm. between the, the the culture, the people, the the mindset, and the African people, or at least in the village that I grew up in. Mm. Right. Mm. The interesting thing is, even though my tribe has been in the location where they've been for maybe two hundred years, two hundred, three hundred years, mm. um, mm. I have to check the facts on that. I keep forgetting to do that. But they, they, they were, you could have considered them nomadic when they were traveling. Mm -hmm. I have often wondered, and I've mentioned this in my other podcast, did they move to where they are today because they were escaping the, the, the slave trade? Ah. Right. Because ah. that's not where we were originally. We, were, we came from the northern region and we traveled okay. in. So oh. moving away from mm. something, mm. people would just leave their areas and then walk away yeah my tribe is definitely not not nomadic my mm -hmm. tribe is a farming tribe mm -hmm. so for a farming tribe to move is either in search of better farmland or for nomadic reasons which there are quite a few of like the akus the fulanis yeah. those are nomadic tribes and they're constantly moving they don't they don't mm -hmm. settle down mm -hmm. in present day they are settling down Mm. They, they are settling down but if you look back and you go back to nigeria yeah. and you look at the houses and um which is the fulanis are more they have kind of intermarry and there's that linkage but the fulanis i think they come more from like the niger downwards but when you look at them now they are settled like you look at the like the houses are the closest people to to the fulani tribe that i can think of right now mm -hmm. And um, they are well settled. They have civilizations mm. that are well settled. Mm. In my village, another Fulani, the Fulani tribe came in after we'd settled in that area for a few, maybe a hundred years. I don't, I don't remember, but they have been in that area for about a hundred and some years. But mm. they, they migrated and they owned slaves as they migrated. They were oh. more than like, yes, they were the lighter skin, which is one of the reasons why I'm wondering. Did my tribe escape slavery by coming down to the location where they were, where they're running away. Because when these people migrated down to my area, their, their slaves were the darker skin. Mm -hmm. yeah. They were the lighter skin. Yeah. And you could still see that hierarchy. You could see all of that. Oh, Going yeah. back to hierarchy, forgetting the slave power, we can dive into that a little bit later. Going back to the slave, to the hierarchies, my tribe, even though they migrated and traveled, there is a very clear governmental, governmental structure. Mm. We have a chief, mm -hmm. the chief has his council, mm -hmm. and then you have the women and the women leaders. 
Mm. Yes. And that's what I grew up knowing. Mm. I, I didn't even know of democracy. We knew we had a president, but <laughs> what does that mean to me? Or see, I grew up and I started understanding the importance of a government and a president. But yeah. when my first leadership structure that I know was my chief. Yeah. We have the chief. Yeah. And then we have the, the chindas. And mm. then we have the chief chindas are like the people that walk around with the chief. And then you have the chief council. And then you have quarter heads. So in because my village had grown, each quarter had its own leader. Mm, mm. And we call them today quarter heads, tinto. That's how we call it in my mm. tribe, tinto. Mm. So the tinto, now if there's anything happening, they govern that area. And if there's anything, then they go to the palace and report to the palace. If there's a case they can solve in that area, they take it then to the palace. Mm. Yes, and there's these structures all mm. over the Northwest province of Cameroon, mm. all over. And like, if you go to Bamum, you will see what you're saying, the big walls and the, I haven't been, but I've seen all the pictures of the big wall. Mm -hmm. You go mm -hmm. to um, the Bamenda, the Bamenda, uh, 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 the Nguyen Palace, Queen Palace is is pretty structured. I think in the old days it would have been very also um, closed up. Mm. So yeah, those structures all exist. Mm. But when when the West goes to Africa, they usually don't pay attention. They look the, the, what is pretty to report is I went to the dark continent and this is what I saw. Yeah, they right. give you what they see that right. is part of the dark. They don't give you right. the right. actualities of the leadership, the governments, the businesses that are running, even yeah. cultures that are running away from something or migrating. Yeah. Know, they're still kept it. Yeah, I almost feel like my view of Africa has been shaped by the, you know, what I would call poverty exploitation, you know? Um, you know, I grew up in, you know, 70s, 80s, mm -hmm. um, and I think the images that I saw of Africa on TV, you know, there were there were famines during that time mm -hmm. in parts of Africa, like, for example, like Ethiopia, which is an amazing civilization. It was one of the greatest civilizations on the entire continent. Right. And yet most Americans, when they hear the country Ethiopia, they think about the images that we've seen of these like tents, makeshift tents with white doctors, um, mm -hmm. treating poor black children that are malnourished. I mean, they look like, I mean, I just think about it and it's just devastating. The images were so devastating. You see these small children that look like skeletons. Like they had, it was like they had bones and then skin. There was nothing yeah. between the bones and the skin. Yeah. That's how, that's how skinny, that's how thin they were and emaciated they were. And then they would have these distended stomachs. Yeah. Because of, yeah, because of the bloating. And that is, I mean, that image of an African child is something that I think everyone in my generation grew up with. Like, we're just used to seeing that as Africa. Mm -hmm. We're used to seeing these poor, poor villages, these huts made out of mud that could be washed away with uh, just a simple rainstorm. They could get washed away huts made out of mud and straw and that's the image that a lot of americans were given yeah. in my generation growing up and so it's hard it's hard for us to imagine that that there were 
flourishing, powerful kingdoms yeah. in Africa, and that there were civilizations, um, you know, back in the 15, 16, 1700s. Um, we don't associate Africa with those images. And so I think this film did, it's like a history lesson in that regard. And it's also, it, it helps to really deconstruct our notions of what Africa is. You know, even though when you use the word dark, dark continent, you know, I, I can't help but think of the word dark in association with two things, dark in terms of skin color, but also dark in terms of, you know, when we talk about Europe, you know, when we talk about the sort of the worst period of European history, we right. talk about it as being the dark ages. That's right. You know? mm. And so I think that association, that connotation is still there when we talk about Africa. When we use when we use the word dark continent, it really strikes this image of it being very underdeveloped as being Italy. very almost almost like you, you I mean you you get this image of like cannibalism and savagery and just you know being a very barbaric place a place where people just have to like struggle to survive that's the image that you get not a place where there is rich culture and there's so much color in what you know how they dress how they you know the food that they eat in terms of you know I'm gonna go back to the film and it's a more of a question is, you know, I saw, you know, some some images of things that they were eating. And obviously the Agoji is eating differently than than other people, right? Because they're warriors. But um, also in their dance, I'm wondering, are those things, do those things, you said if the film made you feel at home, were, were those elements also true to how you would define African culture in this region? Would you say that you felt at home with the way that they presented these other things as well? Um, I the food, for some reason, between this movie and uh, and uh, uh, and the uh, Black Panther one, for some reason, mm. I just felt like they did not do justice to the food. Mm. They, mm. If there is a critique that I have for both movies, mm -hmm. the food, I don't think. Mm -hmm. People have fully captured the importance of food to the African. Mm. I don't think they fully captured that. Yeah. yeah. Before we move on, before I keep on with this train of thought, I hope I don't forget it. I wanted to catch on something you said. The image of the, the kid with Kwashako. Yeah. That's not the only, you are not the only one that saw that image. I grew up in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the 80s. So I saw that. I saw uh -oh. those images. Oh. So. It wasn't only the West bringing watch, like being being pushed uh, these images across. It was us also. We yeah. were being also reminded of how Africa is. That was the Africa that we also knew was being pushed. Uh, and you can tell, like if you like now, I can even pick it out. Like I picked it out early in my own life, and I started to shift. The narrative in my own life and shift my thinking mm. was that whole poverty mentality. Yeah, because what that those images did for us, the Africans, was that it kept telling us we were poor and we needed saving. Yeah. we were poor and we needed right. help from the West. We we're poor. We needed yeah. food from the West, even right. though we have like. Look at the background behind me. It, it <laughs> looks like a Cameroonian 
a, a, a coastal town. Yeah. The amount of food that comes out of these areas every year. My tribe is a farming tribe. We, I farmed and I had so much food, the thing would just rot. Wow. Right? The, the thing that is making some tribes in Africa struggle is that we haven't learned to preserve some of the foods that we have. Mm. So we run out. Yeah. And then we have the season. Yeah. We, in my village, the dry season is the hunger season. So when they start talking about hunger season, it's the dry season. Yeah. Why is it the hunger season? It is the hunger season because we have used up all the fresher foods yeah. and the Desolate dry land doesn't yeah. allow us to produce all the fresh, wonderful food that we just have everywhere all the time, right? So we, 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 we come down to a little bit of corn that is left because that's something that, that can be preserved for a longer period. We, we're left with a little bit of beans. And modern days, we start to buy rice, some tribes mm. farm rice. Mm. So because of all of mm. that, that we even with that, like I was trying to change the narrative recently with a friend, and I said to them, I don't want you to think about it as in these people are hungry and dying and yeah. they they need some kind of intervention. Yeah. Think about it like this. During the farming season, the fresh season, harvest season, there is all kinds of foods yeah. to the point where the food is even getting bad. Yeah. But during the dry season or during maybe some kind of, of uh, drought happens, there becomes a big shortage compared to what the villages have. Yeah. So they don't have the abundance. And to them, they think they don't have food. My uncle, for example, will tell you that there is hunger if he doesn't eat fufu corn at least two or three times a week. No. Give him whatever else you give him. Yeah. If he doesn't have his fufu corn, there is hunger. Uh, so it's those little narratives. Going back now to the movie, mm. the, 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 the dance, you mentioned the dance. Yeah. If, the, if they captured something about the African tribe, if that's the only thing that was captured, uh -huh. they did a phenomenal job with it. Oh, okay. They did a phenomenal job. Okay. I don't know any African tribe where dancing is not a big part of it. Like Africans can dance to anything and it's not because our <laughs> bodies can just get up and dance. It's because we grew up dancing. That's right, that's right. Right? Like we grew up, we watch our parents do these complicated moves from the time we are little. We yeah. have festival. Mm -hmm. We have festival. Like when you saw the festival with the kids doing the, the uh, competing, yeah. I'm not saying the women compete in my tribe. We don't have the, the competing, but um, the dancing, it's colorful. You have all kinds of colorful dressing, dancing, different kinds of dancing. The women dance, the male dance. The male dance usually is like the war dance. But my tribe is a warring tribe too. Like we fought wars as I was old enough to see my tribe go to war. Oh, wow. Right. Yes. Old enough to see through my tribe go to war. Old enough to see somebody from that was living in my family home go to war and die. Oh wow. So I have experienced tribal war. Mm. 
Mm. <laughs> and I'm what, 45. So <laughs> I have experienced a lot of these things that are in this movie. And it's it's not, that's why to me, I've gone three times. And every time I go, I enjoy it as if it was the first time. <laughs> okay. So the things you saw, yeah, they, they are pretty, they're, they're very... Okay. I'm not saying accurate in every little detail, but they're very close to accurate. Yeah. yeah. And you felt at home. I felt I felt at home, even though the you know when they were coming through the reverence and not looking up. Yeah. In there is a there is a um uh this is a little bit of an extreme, but is there is an uh, uh uh there is a juju. You know what a juju is, right? A masquerade. Oh. Okay. Yes. A masquerade. So there is a masquerade that when it comes from the palace, it's a messenger of the king or it's, it goes to funerals to do. If you've seen he who, he who, um, he who something to win. Uh, what is that movie? Where the young guy uh, 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 creates a wind win, a win, a win thing to control water. Oh, I yes, I did, I did see that. Yes, I saw yes. that film. Yeah. You, if you remember, you remember the masquerade and people come to the funeral for okay. people okay. when the king dies. They're, they're not looking. There are there masquerades that you don't look upon. Um, you're cursed if you look upon those masquerades. Men and women. Oh, okay. There are mm. few people mm. that look upon this masquerade. I think both men and women, but there's one for sure that women don't look upon. Yeah. So the, the tradition of not looking is very like a sign of reverence a sign of respect is very common okay. and the one thing i was telling a friend some people used to think i was shy because at the age mm -hmm. even by the age of 21 i would not look people in the eye wow. so it's a very cultural thing for uh -huh. an african child not to look at people in the eye yeah. i get really uncomfortable if i'm talking to a kid and the kid is like staring me like it's like <laughs> yeah. but I had to adapt, right? I had to adapt because I yeah. live in a different culture where you look the yeah. person in the eye. But yeah. my culture is when you when you have respect for somebody, yeah. you look them in the eye. When you talk, you can look up once in a while, but you talk with the head bow or you with respect. Yeah. With, yeah. It's it's a different, yeah. Yeah. You know what's interesting about that comment is. You know, there's something, and every once in a while, I feel this way as well. When you, when um, I'm talking with someone from another culture, and they say this is part of my culture, and I, and I think, wow, that sounds like my culture too. Yeah. And in Asian culture, this is exactly the same way. Children do not look at their parents or adults straight in the eye um, when they are speaking to them. I mean, there is a phrase that specifically means cover your eyes. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like put down your eyes. Like they, that's a, it's something that is said to people um, when you want them to show you respect. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a similar sentiment in, in, I think in Eastern cultures as well too. And I think, I don't know if this is true about me because I grew and I was born in the US and I grew up here, but I feel like it has influenced me. And I feel like there are situations where I do ask myself, Am I looking at this person in the eyes sufficiently? Like, am, is, um, is, are they, am I meeting their expectation of eye contact? 
right? Because I have my sort of my normative practice about eye contact, but in my mind, I think, okay, so they're, they're from a Western cultural context. Do they expect me to really have more eye contact with them? Or is this level enough? Like I question myself. So. And it's, 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 it's sensible. You grew up with first generation parents, right? Yeah. Like yep. they, you, right. you had to grow up with that in the home. Yeah. And even though you were born and raised here, you struggle with it. Yeah. Imagine somebody that came to the United States. That's right. Thirties. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's true. Absolutely. And people don't realize those little things. I worked a job. Yeah. I'm a very, I'm a storyteller. I always have a story. Yeah. <laughs> I worked a job where the guy was African running mm. a business, mm. and he was importing toys from China, mm. and mm. I was working with him, taking these toys, selling it, and then we would make a commission. When I moved to LA, I was like looking for jobs before I, I started doing uh, background on TV shows. That's what I, would, I was trying to do. So I, because he was African, my African instincts automatically kicked in. And mm. I, would not, I would not do anything without his permission. Mm-hmm even though I was considered to have autonomy. So mm-hmm. when I would go out to do things, mm-hmm. I wouldn't make those decisions because I was like, I don't know if I could, I'm allowed to make this decision. Mm-hmm. I need mm-hmm. opinion for me to do things. Yeah. So I wasn't doing a lot of things and they were mad at me. They were like, why is it that you, know, you, you are the boss here, Ruth? It's your, your thing. You, can't, you, you need to do it. And then one day I, I said to him, I am, I'm giving you respect. It's, you are the boss. I don't want to undermine you. (laughs) To me, I was doing the right thing. Everybody, I was doing the wrong thing. (laughs) And it took me a while to realize that I I was at cultural conflict. Yeah. I was at a huge cultural conflict. And I ended up leaving the job, losing money, the other people taking advantage of that weakness. Oh, wow. Yes, they did. They did. Because I left with a shortage because they just took advantage of me. They realized, okay, she wants to always go to the boss. I'll make these decisions. I'll do this. And then just, so at the end of the day, I lost money by joining that company. I got taken advantage of. And the boss, even though the boss understood where I was coming from and tried to help me understand it, at that point, I was just too burned. So I left. I left the company. I'm sorry. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, it's like when we talk about culture, sometimes that's why I like to approach yeah. DIB from culture because I'm like, yeah. when you talk about DIB, sometimes when you don't look at the person's culture, you're basically just talking skin color. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. No, Somebody could have thought I am African-American. I get it. Yeah. I was born and raised in America. I get it. Yeah. I don't. In yeah. my culture, what I was doing was completely appropriate and the way to do things. In your culture, it's completely wrong. And I, I, I didn't, I actually, it was detrimental to me. I didn't feel included. I didn't feel like I belonged. Wow. I just felt I lost because yeah. of my culture. Yeah. Yeah, that is so interesting. You know, when you, when we look at, at how our, um, dialogue around culture and race and ethnicity has been shaped you're right I think largely it's about skin color and we forget that even within 
people that look similar to one. So I get this all the time, right? So I, I'm people just normally assume that I'm Chinese. And then if I'm not Chinese, I must be Japanese. Right? <laughs> and so Korean is like, like they have to guess wrong a few times to get to Korean. Unless, okay. unless you hear my last name and, and some people yeah. know that Kim is a Korean name. But unless you know that, you know, it sometimes it takes people that are not well informed. It takes them several guesses to get to my ethnicity. And I've even heard some people say things like, oh, aren't you Asians all the same? What does it matter? you know, and they don't understand. I don't think they understand how offensive that sounds, right? Yes. Um, because I think as an, as, you know, as particularly coming from Caucasian Americans, right? So Caucasian Americans, what's interesting about their view of race is they're almost raceless, right? I mean, they don't have a race. They're the, they're the normative race, right? They're, they're the standard by which everyone else is judged by. So they don't have a race. Everyone else is a race, right? Everyone else is a minority. They're just, they just, they're, they just are, right? They just exist, right? And so I think in a lot of ways, they also have a very disassociative view of their own culture and their own history, right? So I think some European Americans, some white Americans have an understanding if they're close enough in, in their generations to the, the, the first immigrants to the U.S., they have an understanding that, oh, yes, we, you know, I, I, I know my, my parents spoke German, so I know, and we ate, you know, you know, Wiener schnitzels, and we ate, um, you know, uh, I don't know, I, I'm, I don't know enough to oh, know, oh, that they, <laughs> like, yeah, German beer, or whatever it is, right, like, they grew up with that, so they have enough of that, the language, and the food, and the culture, to be able to have some association with that, but I think a lot of Americans don't, I think a lot of Americans don't have this sense of, I come from, it's just I am. I am white. I am American, right? And so they don't have this rootedness, and because of that, their view of others is shaped in the in a similar way. That sure, I mean, they're just you know the the easiest go to is just your skin color, right? I mean, that's easy to differentiate people that way. It's much harder to differentiate French from German, from Croatian, from you know Portuguese, because they're they don't have those markers anymore right they, they don't have those cultural markers um that we've just talked about things like your clothing you know like french french americans don't dress differently than italian americans in america you know <laughs> they just don't right and so i think that maybe there is an implicit assumption that therefore people of other skin color types also are just sort of a homogenous whole that we can make general assumptions about, right? And in the case of Africans and African-Americans, I think that the media portrayal of them in historically has been a very monocular view that they are, again, they're impoverished, that they're needy, that they're maybe even that they have a criminal element or uh, that are not trustworthy because of that, you know, so there's a, there's a view of different races formulated around and you know when we talk about and we can we don't need to do this today. But when we talk about Asians as a race, you know th that's become problematic in the last, especially in the last couple of years right I mean we've known that there was anti Asian bias in America, but it's become just so much more violent in the last couple of years. Um, because of U.S. China relations, because of COVID being, you know, people call COVID the Wuhan virus or China virus. And because of that, and because of all of the trauma that's associated with 
COVID and with the pandemic, you know, I think people are really trying to make sense of it and they don't know where to go. And so it often, should, you know, we have a fight or flight response, right? So people right. either either sequester themselves and retreat away from the public sphere or they retreat away from public interaction with other cultures or other people or they get aggressive. Yeah. And they like blame or they accuse or even attack. You know, there are many, many Asian Americans that not only were attacked, but that died. I mean, it's like, it's almost like the, it's it's a it's sort of a new history of um, Asian American lynching in America, you know, like targeting people, right. targeting Asian Americans and murdering them, you know? And, and it's just something that, you know, I think that we weren't ready for. Um, but I think what I'm seeing today is I'm seeing a lot of positive come around that, the dialogue that's happening and the attention that's being focused on that. But back again to the to the film itself, I really feel like the film does, you know, we've been talking a lot about a lot of the positives of the film, that it really does portray Africans and African culture and African history and society in a new light. And that's really, really needed today more than ever before. Um, I'm wondering if we could make a shift in our conversation to maybe talk about the controversies because there's some yes. there's been some some African American groups that have boycotted the film, right? Can we talk about that a little bit? Can you can we unpack yeah. that a little bit? What do yeah. you think? So um, after watching the film yesterday again, I it's not that I could not understand their 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 pain. I believe it's coming from a place of pain. It's coming from a place of um, not understanding the true history and not understanding the time period, the context in which slavery happened on the continent of Africa. Um, I'm not gonna do justice to this, but if people want to, they can go back and listen to the, uh, the historical perspective of the, the woman king with Sylvia Sabine that I did. She mm. breaks it down because she's a historian. Mm. So first thing I always want to say to any African-American is your pain is legit. Your pain is real. The second point I always want to say is as much as you're hurting, know that you had ancestors that were left behind that were mm. hurting the same Mm, mm. They lost children, they mm. lost brothers, they lost aunties, they lost uncles. There was a lot of pain left on the African yeah. continent because of slavery. So yeah. as much I understand the anger, like you sold your own. Mm. I get that. Mm. It was not right for the chiefs to sell their own. Yeah. But why did they sell their own? They went to war. It was a time period where it was empire building. It was yeah. kingdom building. Yeah. So as much as uh, Rome was conquering and, and occupying and the Islamic nations were coming in and conquering and also the coastals were conquering. As I mentioned, my tribe had gone to war as recent as me and my uh, seven, eight, nine years old or 10, I know when my tribe went to war, why did they go to war? Yeah. Over land. It mm. was over land. It was over territory, mm. right? So 
kingdoms where they grew because they conquered other kingdoms. It's a historical fact. Yeah. In the process of conquering kingdoms, some of these kings got greedy because every kingdom would capture slaves. Yeah. Every kingdom captured slaves during yeah. war. Yeah. It's how you treated the slaves that mattered. Yeah. In my yeah. tribe, when slaves were captured, they became members of a certain mm -hmm. family or the tribe. Mm -hmm. Two, three generations, you will not even know that they were captured because right. they have just became members of That's the right. family. Right. They weren't treated differently. You were just captured and you, you, right. helped, you actually helped the tribe grow. Right? You actually helped the tribe grow. Right. The mentality where capturing slaves became servitude and all of that, it's not it's not completely an African mentality of slavery. Mm -hmm. Came with, with the Arabs, because slavery on the first on the continent, African continent, started with the Arabs, like trade, mm -hmm. trade. Yeah, it started with the Arabs, taking people and selling them to the Portuguese to the Portuguese to Europe. So mm -hmm. that's my understanding of history, and I think uh, Silver Sabine also supports that. It mm -hmm. wasn't the African style of slavery is when they were capturing, when, when the, 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 the Americas noticed that slaves from Africa were brought and sold in Europe and they were making, they were becoming servitude. There was like profit to be gained that the trade on the coast of Africa mm. changed also. So, mm. and they came with weapons. The thing that drew the most profit was the weapons because these chiefs, they took these guns and they went and conquered more kingdoms with those That's guns. Right. That's right. So that the kingdoms can grow. Yeah. The kingdom of Daomi was, from what I have been told by historians, it was small. But when they started selling their slaves to get guns and other goods that were brought, they grew because they had more things to fight with. The movie doesn't address it exactly like that. The movie addresses it as in, there were the other Oyo tribes that came in and, and, and were capturing the, their yeah. own. Yeah. But there's a possibility that at a certain point, the other tribes also became stronger and started attacking the Dahomey tribe. Yeah. That's what interchanging and capturing now their own. And I've made the argument that if you're angry at the Dahomey for mm -hmm. selling uh, uh, the slave trade, for capturing, for selling their, 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 their war, their prisoners of war, think about it. Dahomey, the Dahomeyans also must have been sold into slavery because tribes yeah. in the married. So not everybody in Daomi was like, yeah, king, let's sell them off. No, the king, like I, we talked in earlier, there is a hierarchy. The African people are not just like a bunch of people just chilling in the village and just going, yeah, give us beer, let's sell them off. No, if they are capable yeah. of capturing people, it means that they had the power to fight and engage in war and do something to capture people. And mm -hmm. once they did that and sell these people, they sold their own too. They must have sold their own because of intertribal marriages, because of 
maybe they could decide that you're a criminal they don't want you just think today mm. people even today in 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 real life people will betray each other just to 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 make a profit yeah so dahomeans also were so you can't say that just because dahomeans so people the Zamans are all bad now we should boycott the movie no you can't you can't then you're missing out on a lot of historical facts that align the mm. movie Yes, there is a lot of fiction, uh, fictional things in the movie, but there's also a lot of truth in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's such a hard thing to talk about um, because I don't think we even know what the whole truth is. There's no way to know today what really happened back then. <clears throat> I think for one side to blame the other side, I think is... Probably it falls into that category of how we like to dichotomize things. We like to see that there is one side that's right and one side that's wrong. And the side that's right is always right. The side that's wrong is always wrong. And when we do that, we fail to recognize, you know, there's a, a, a I'm going to refer to something from the Bible. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, it's. I don't think there's anyone on this earth that could say I'm really per I'm perfect and I'm okay. good and I'm always good. Um, I think we all have complicity. I think we all have yes. internal controversy and complexity um, that is at the root of who we are as human beings. And as you said, what person would not do what they could to better their own lives, even if it hurts somebody else, right? And I think that there are people that are constrained by good ethics and good morals, by religion, by spirituality, by faith, by um, even the desire to follow rules and laws, um, maybe some legalism. But I think that regardless of the root of that, there is also, it's a tension, right? So there is, it's not like everyone is going to sell their brothers and their sisters into slavery, but at the same time, I don't think any of us could really put ourselves into the the shoes of someone else that we we don't even know and and um just just set judgment upon them. I think it's really it's it's unfair, but I don't beyond being even unfair, I don't think we recognize the inherent hypocrisy of that. Yes. Right? We don't know who we are if yes. we're if we're coming coming down in judgment of others. Right. One one thing that I did um one thing that I think that the people that are um, stoking this fire of controversy fail to recognize, this is my opinion, by the way, is when I watch the film, this is one of the first films that I've seen um, that centered on an African narrative that speaks of Africans as being part of the slave trade, not, not just victims of the slave trade, but they participated in the slave trade. I mean, you hear the other, you know, I mean, obviously, because of the way that the film, you know, um, derives its narrative and wants to um, build its narrative, it's going to set up, set apart one tribe as being the good guys, right? And so, you know, again, I think there's a little bit of, you know, a part of the term, but whitewashing of the, you know, the Dahomey tribe itself, because obviously they weren't perfect. Yeah. Um, but one thing that the film I thought did very well, it was very courageous to do in this film, was to even talk about African complicity 
in the slave trade and that there is some responsibility there. It's not just something that happened because white people came in and captured all these people. For the most part, white people didn't come in and capture anyone. They they just went in and bought and traded, right? Um, and they're guilty. They're still guilty of doing this. They were still wrong yeah. and guilty and it was atrocious and wrong. But right. it's not like they came in and they they, they didn't wage war against Africa and no. then capture war, you know, you know, uh, prisoners of war and then sell them off. They didn't, that's not what they did. They they exploited a situation. You know, they they looked at what is sort of the worst conditions and attributes of humanity and how can we how can we like allow that to fester and allow that to become a plague and and take advantage of that. Right. So I think that they were very clever. The the Europeans were very clever in how they utilize the ongoing conflict and the human interaction in that region for their benefit. They couldn't do that in Europe because right. Europeans weren't willing to sell their own, even right. if they fought against each other, they weren't right. willing to sell their own into slavery because just because of the economic system and because social system at that time. Right. But at the same time, but they took advantage of the situation. Right. right. At the same time, they had already like the 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 they had already been that that whole transaction with from the northern part. That's right. Before it even hit the coast, before is right. before transatlantic slave trade, yeah. there was already slave trade going to Europe. Yeah. So somebody had to get the idea from somewhere. That's right. That's right. Before transatlantic slave trade happened. They had seen it in Europe because of people being captured from the north and taken from That's that right. northern area and taken to Europe. Yeah. And then the, the, if the Portuguese were also in the Americas and they're like, hey, we got good workers from Africa, we could just buy them. Then they came now with enticing the coastal people and say, hey, we give you guns. That's right. And it just, they, they really took advantage of that situation. Yeah. And somebody has argued that before any form of slave trade, not, not with the transatlantic, before that other form of slave trade, the African kingdoms, they, 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 did, they, they did what they needed to do. Mm. And they grew in their own space. There, was, there wasn't this, this type of ills that, that, that yeah. exists yeah. today. Is the introduction of selling of, of people yeah. that almost like a curse on the African continent. That's right. That's right. Because they, like you said, you saw you saw those buildings, you saw those things, you saw it was they were thriving communities. If yeah. they say the Masamusa was the richest person in in, in the world. Masamusa yeah. must have had a kingdom and Masamusa from that coastal area had a kingdom and didn't need to sell slave because yeah. he had all the goals, he had all the other things. He did not need to say When did we go from rich kingdoms mm. to kingdoms that sell their own? How is that transition that is intriguing to me now? Like how yeah. did we come from the place where a person captured our war became part of the family to a person captured our war became a product? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's that commodification of human life. I think that really destroyed 
if we want to talk about the destruction of the African continent, I don't, you know, I think colonization is part of that. Yes. But I think that it happened before colonization it happened during the, the, the yes. slave trade period, where where you dehumanized people, not it, and it's not just white people dehumanizing Africans, it's, it's white African. people co-opting the African peoples to believe that about themselves as well. Yes. To believe that they can that human life, African human life, can be commodified, yes. right? And that could be that it could be reduced to property. And I think that that is that is a legacy. I think that I think that we all have to take responsibility for number one. But I think that you know it's the majority of the burden of that really is being borne by the African Americans on the American soil. You know, America is in in general North and South America, but also of Africans in Africa on the African continent as well too. And I think that that's something that this film. Perhaps for me as an outsider looking in, I think that it's great that people are having this conversation about, I don't think it's right for people to boycott the film because of it. I think it should drive conversation between Africa and between America, the, the, Af the, you know, the Blacks in Africa and the Blacks in America. I think that conversation is necessary for us to move to sort of a next like our, the next evolution in like how we are as a human race. Like, I don't right. think that we can get there without this honest conversation. I feel like this is I like agree. a dark secret that nobody wants to talk about. Yeah, I agree. It's, this is the first time that I have had so much conversation about it. Like it's, it's always been yeah. almost a taboo thing. And a moment right. film that really institutes what you're saying or, or, or accentuates, I cannot say that word, <laughs> that what you're saying is that moment where um, the, 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 young, the young guy that whose parents were, were uh, whose mother was sold as a slave yeah, to yeah. when, and, and, and gets the, that water and starts to wash. Mm -hmm. oh you should have the room i watched it in a group in a theater none of us knew what was coming during that moment but that washing it just broke something in me mm -hmm. and you could hear the whole room it was at the crenshaw theater filled with all black people you could hear the room just go wow. nobody was chewing popcorn nothing nobody was even blinking was switching i wasn't wow. blinking wow. i was dead frozen yeah. for that scene yeah it was it felt to me like this is the conversation we need to we need to reconcile we need to to work on this pain it touched on the pain it was like that jesus moment where you're washing of the feet yeah it was yeah. it was for me considering I have really favorite movies. That was my, I have to say that was my second favorite moment in that movie. Wow. That my second favorite moment, yes. So that remind me, what was the context behind the washing? What was the meaning behind it? I think it was a silent meaning because when, when she comes, when he comes into the room and she thinks like he is in support, now, you're, now I'm your slave and all of that. But he is half Daomian. Yeah. But to him, he's like, no, I'm, I'm, 
I'm part of you. I'm not part of these people. I want to protect you. I want to help you. And he goes in there and he says, here's the key. Now you have, you have the, the power to open the door, right? And then he goes, if I'm not mixing the scene up, and then he goes the, between the key and the washing of the hand. Then he goes and brings a bucket and start to wash. For me, it was just more, it just reminded me of the, the, the washing of the feet, the Jews washing, uh, Jesus uh, washing the feet of the disciple. Mm. And not because I think, oh, he's a white man, he's a savior mindset. No, it's more a healing moment, a moment to say, I'm with you on this. I am here for you. I don't agree with this injustice. I do have the blood. I do have the, the, the hurt. I do have all of that, but I am here with you. And how do we move forward from here? How do I help you wash this blood off your hands? Like we all, we both have blood mm. on our hands. How mm. can I help you wash the blood off your hands? Wow. Like I can say to a white person, can I help you wash the blood off your hands? Wow. Can you help me wash the blood off my hands? Wow. We're all guilty in this business. We wow. all have blood on our hands. How yeah. do we wash the blood off our hands? Yeah. Well, that's powerful. That's really powerful. It, it, one of the things that I wanted to get to, and you've, you've gotten to it beautifully, is the character of Malik, you know. the yes, Malik. His name is Malik. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he is such a complicated character in the film. He is both white and black at the same time. And what's interesting about that is in America, I don't know about Af the African continent, but in America, if you are the child of a white and a black parent, nobody will consider you white. No one mm -hmm. in America. You will always be black. Mm -hmm. You know what in they Africa say? Africa is the opposite. Is that right? You're always white. <laughs> Interesting. Because in America, there's this, there's this racist saying in America. It, and the racist saying, it comes from a court case, Brown versus Board case, I think it was, or Ferguson versus Ple Plessy versus Ferguson, one or the other. And they said in the court case, they argued that even one drop of black blood makes you black, which means even if you are, even if you have just a, a little bit of black genealogy, we're going to treat you like a second class citizen. And it was just something that really, I think, you know, when we look back at it as a, as a society now, it's, it's so abhorrent to think that we would classify people in that way. And secondly, to, I mean, it was a very white perspective about race. I mean, the white race was about purity, right? It's sort of Aryan purity. And so even if you have one drop of that black blood, it defiles the entire person as if black blood were dirty, as if black blood were evil, right? And so there is this, um, it's, it's something that I think we don't necessarily talk about anymore. It's something that was dealt with in the 60s um, during our civil, civil rights era, but we haven't really come back to it. And we see it in films, right? We see there are, you know, black, quote unquote, black, actors in films but they are seen as more desirable if they have lighter skin like we don't talk about that right like we rarely see very very dark mm -hmm. black actor actors and actresses you rarely see that right 
usually it's lighter skinned black yeah. people yeah. that are more accepted and that are seen as more beautiful, yeah. right? And so I think there's something really complicated about the characterization of Malik in the film. He is white and black. He has a white father and a black mother. And I'm assuming she was the homie. So she must have been a slave also. She didn't yeah, go fully, right? So he is, I mean, in, in a certain sense, if you look at sort of American laws about slavery, it, it directly in the laws, in American slavery laws, it says the children of slaves, their status is determined not by the father, but by the mother. So they would always hold on to the females more than the males mm -hmm. because of the lineage, because you could just keep breeding, right? Like property, you can breed future slaves. Yes. By just holding on to the women. Yes. And so there is this notion that, again, your slavery is determined by your maternal heritage. If that's if that's the lens that we're looking at, if it's mainly an American audience that's watching this film, right. then the lens by which we're watching it, it, it automatically drives us to the assumption then that this half white, half black character must act actually be a slave in our eyes they must be a slave like all other slaves because they were born from a slave um the fact that there is european and african um you know th that that entire dichotomy coming and living itself out in one single person you don't have that right you don't have that anywhere else where in a single person you have both the slave and the slaver, where you have the African and the European, yeah. where you have white and black in one person. Yeah. And I felt like the scene that you mentioned, I think, I think was was getting at that tension. But mm -hmm. I feel like the character itself of Malik was so un because of how important this is, wow. it's so underutilized. For me, it was so underutilized in the film. He was um, like a tertiary character a love interest and something that I think they touched when he visited the village and his emotions yeah. he touched on it but I think that more could have been that there was that tension between Malik and his friend as well like again he was black he was a slave because of that heritage and genealogy but he was also white because he dressed like a white and he himself was a slave trader yeah. right he was both slave and slave trader right he wasn't he came because he wanted to he 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 can you, you can argue he was a slave trader because he was partnering with this guy to come but he came yeah, because yeah. his mother was from Dahomey and his mother had insisted that he should return and that's see true. the land and he just buried his mother so he wanted to come see the land that's true that's that's true. that's a good point i guess i was just speaking of his positionality in the film uh, personality yes, yes yes he came on the boat with the slave yeah. traders he came and when he landed when people looked at him they weren't thinking he was of their a slave trader yeah and, that's, and i agree with you yes i totally i see what your point and i agree because like i just i said earlier if you have the the if you're that light skin then you're white yeah you're half black, half white. You're white in the African continent. You're not yeah. black. So yeah. when you when you say that you're white, that you're black, then they look at you like, oh, yeah. Like she she kind of had that sympathy when she was in the bush. She's like, so you're 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 from there. You're white. You're not. You're black. You're not. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's yeah. almost like a sympathy right. thing for him. Like oh, I feel so bad for you. Yeah. Right? And and I feel like. 
Yeah, and I feel like almost he wanted the character itself was almost taking the position that you can have white privilege and black privilege at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like he can have the wealth, he can have his best friend is white, right? Mm-hmm. He he came on the white ship. He's regarded as white. He gets the respect of the white. And yet he can go into the village and he can almost co-opt that culture as his own because yeah. he also gets that black black privilege. And I think that that's, that's really complicated. I, I think that in itself is a controversy that's not well, well, well explored. I, I don't think that the film does that justice. Like, what does that mean to be, to walk on both sides, mm-hmm. you know? It must be very hard. I one one lady when uh, one lady was telling me that she's she's half white and she went to Africa and she was just so happy to be there and then she reached out to say hello to a kid and everybody was like like yeah. they treated her as white That's right, right. Almost That's right. Like, and it was hard for her it was yeah. really hard for her so it's it's like I I maybe there will be a second movie and maybe that this is what they will explore more but you have nailed you've nailed on something I didn't catch and that's it the complexity of Malik's role and all the stories that we can tell on all all the things we can explore with his role yeah I think the contrast that I can see is you know there have been a lot of African states statesmen and stateswomen who have gone to the west to study for higher education right right? so you have princes and kings and you have presidents that have gone to europe that have gone to america and have studied there and they've learned and they've received and they've grown and they've expanded what they thought that you know the world was they they benefited from that exchange but when they come back they don't come back as a white person Mm -hmm. right they come back as a member of that culture and they retain that heritage and that identity, but it's completely different for Malik, right? He doesn't, that's not part of his, his, his entry into this film is as an outsider, right? It's as someone who doesn't understand, who doesn't quite belong, but has a yearning to, right? That there's that part of him that wants to. And I think that that's, that like that that sort of dualism i think is something that i think could be like you said maybe explored further i think that the film maybe because of the many things it was trying to accomplish maybe didn't have yeah. time and space to right. do it but i think that it was a missed opportunity there was a missed opportunity because his character was probably along with nawi uh, not nawi um yeah nawi along with nawi is probably are probably the most complex characters in the film for me because of who they are yeah. Um, and and yeah, and maybe we can move to that now. Maybe we can talk yeah. about Naui a little bit. What? How did you think about the portrayal of Naui? One thing that I thought about yesterday between those two characters is, oh, they can relate, right? Like mm-hmm. they can relate. They can they can relate, yeah. and because yeah. of their complex backgrounds. That's right. The interesting thing is Naui didn't even know of her complex background until later. That's but true. it seems that instinctively, she yeah. was more understanding yeah. of who uh, uh, he is. And once even yeah. when she gets that her father was just not a good man yeah. and the pain that they caused the mother, she yeah. kept apologizing. 
yeah. a moment I thought she was rejecting her by that with that apology she was rejecting her it's later that I realized no she's not rejecting her she's empathizing she's sympathizing she's mm -hmm. she's in pain mm -hmm. that she was a, that she is a result of the pain that was caused upon yeah. her mother. That's right. Just as Malik could be like, I am the result of the pain of slavery upon you. Can you imagine the burden? Just the burden that Malik carries. I see the point again. The burden that 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 Nawi carries. It's mm -hmm. such heavy burdens. It's such heavy burdens and guilt. And which, if not addressed properly, can result can can just result in this fractured identity, fractured personality, because he's Malik is definitely have a, a fractured personality. Yeah. Yeah. That moment where he goes in the boat and cuts that the, the slaves and let the slaves kill his kill his his friend. Yeah. That's conflict. You so much conflict, conflict in 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 uh. uh in Nawi conflict in Malik. So if they're building a part two, maybe those are the two characters they have mm -hmm. to build. Yeah. Let's go from that hand washing. Yeah. How do we grow yeah. from the hand washing place? Yeah. These larger conversations that is that is unconscious. And let me throw in something there. Why? Because you mentioned the international, the, the Africans that have come now and studied like me, that have come to, to the to the West and studied. And if we decide to go back home, in the 80s, there was a lot of, of Africans that would go back home with pride. The 70s and 80s, they went back with pride. Yeah. And they, their governments didn't pay them enough. Their government didn't give them jobs. They didn't have jobs. And then in the, in the 90s, I think they packed their backs again and moved back to, to the West, right? Mm -hmm. So it's that complexity. But it's also that complexity where education is a Western uh, a system is the, the way that the education is done is western system compared to how children are taught in the villages right. now once they leave they are they, they get incorporated or they get integrated into a culture or they adopt cultural aspects that are different from their tribes mm -hmm. sometimes when they go back if they were if in their tribe they worship other gods and they became christians mm -hmm. they go back now they're acting more like the white man Mm. So all of a sudden they don't fit in. Yeah. So th there is also that fractured identity for the African that because of colonization, because of the interactions with, with slave traders, they now have adopted cultures that are not relevant to, to their culture and they don't really fit in. That's right. So that's a new challenge for the African today. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think because you have this rape of a continent, there is this loss, inherent loss of history and culture. You know, history is told by the victors. And when you have colonization that's lasted, you know, over 100 years on, on a continent, that erases memory of who you were. And I think reestablishing what that is is going to be an important job for this next generation of Africans. Um, you know, I've been reading about um, development around the world. 
And I've written a little bit about it. I, I just finished a um, writing a textbook on international business. Oh, nice. And a lot of my, yeah, but a lot of my stories are coming out of Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, historically, I worked in China. And so my previous book was about business in China. But my the the one that I just finished this year in 2022, um, along with some 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 uh, co-authors that I worked with around the world, mm-hmm. um, we do use a lot of examples from from the African continent because as we've looked more and more at the development cycles um, in different countries and different regions around the world, what we're seeing is that Africa is poised to become um, a hub for science and technology. It's poised to become a hub for um, um, for economic development. And also, most importantly, that's going to drive this is it's seen as the next um, uh, major market hub for population growth. Yeah. And they've even predicted that there are going to be cities in Africa that are 50 million people. I mean, the largest cities in America in, in the world today are maybe around 30, 25 to 30 million people right now. They're predicting that African cities are going to be the largest in the world. Um in the next maybe 30, 30 years, 30 to 40 years, not immediately, yes. but 30 to 40 years, yes. the largest cities in the world will be in Africa, which means, you know, business is driven by consumption, you know, uh, free market, free market economies are driven by consumption. And so if you think about it that way, just as China was the marketplace, because they had 1 billion customers, um, Africa will be the next economy economic hub of the world. Everyone's going to put their attention on Africa. So I think it's really important now before we get to that point, right? Before 30 years, 40 years into the future, for Africa to really discover and establish who they are as a people. Yes. Um, because yes. I think in, in Africa, I'm talking about as a as a as a continent, but there are, are countries in Africa individually that need to de- yes. individually that need to determine their own identity as well too. Right. Before they get caught up in again, this economic growth growth cycle, which is going to overshadow concepts like identity. We're going to lose our sense of identity by that time. So I agree. I I agree 100%. I wish I knew you were writing a book. I would have wanted to be a part of it. Um, Yeah, my, when I got into the pro, before I got into, before I switched my dissertation into looking at culture, looking at uh, 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 colonization and looking at this identity issue and cultural relevance, I was focused on technology and online education and online schools. Mm-hmm. But I had to put a purse on it because it felt like we were everything we were doing was just copying mm-hmm. whatever the West was doing. Yeah. Yeah. So I put a purse because I wanted to say, what is the African identity? Do I know my identity as an African? What am I looking for in an education? What does an African education look like? Whether it is in the STEM field or it's in history or other things. What does an African education look like? If I was to build an online school, what does an African online school look like? Am I just going to copy whatever the West is doing? Or am I going to create an online school that is relevant to these kids in the African continent? Right. So I put a purse for that reason. And I said, once I can establish a a cultural foundation, an identity that is African or even how to even measure this identity or how to even create or reclaim 
this identity. That's right. That's right. And then only then can the education that I want to do on the continent will be meaningful. That's Otherwise, right. I will continue to build people that want to run to the West and, and live in the West because yeah. I'll keep telling them that the West is great instead of telling them that their continent is great. So right. um, I, I, I love that you brought it up. I love that because I just wrote an article which we haven't published. We're looking for a place to publish it. And it's intercultural com uh, uh, in communications and collaborations in a, in a market space for young kids. Mm. So, mm. and the whole point, my whole drive there was, what is the world doing knowing that Africa is going to be the next marketplace? Mm. What are you doing to prepare your kids for 50 years from now? So that was, that's, that, right. that, that's, that's right. where I was going with that. Are you leveraging the, 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 the culture of the African continent and, and, and training your children on how to interact culturally, interculturally, how to interact cross-culturally, how to interact, collaborate cross-culturally, especially with the African continent. Because if your leaders today in the United States plan 50 years from now or 30 years from now, those kids that are maybe 12, by yeah. the 30 years from now, they will be what, about 52? And if you're a CEO of 52 in a multinational right. uh, company or a mega company and you want multinational company and you want to work in Africa, are you equipped? And if you're not That's equipped, right. what are you doing today to get yourself That's equipped right. to work with these people 30 years from now? That's right. Yeah. That's, I think that's the message that young people need to hear today. It's yeah. discover who you are first. Yeah. You know, who are you? Who are your people? Where do you come from? You come from. And then find strength from there and then develop yourself. And then and then look outward, you know, right? And then connect to the world and learn about everyone else. Because I think unless we know who we are first to a certain degree, I think we will fail in our endeavor to because if we are identity less and we're connecting with people who we feel or who they feel might have strong sense of identity, we will always be at a disadvantage. We will always be at their whim. And I, I fear, you know, the, the positive is that this will become the African century, right? right? But the fear is that it will become another version of neocolonialism where the wealthy countries will come in and, and they will just take, right? Where they will take advantage of, where they will say our way is the best way our products are what you want, right? Like buy the ivory, white ivory soap, right? That's what you want. And buy our white milk. Instead of the black soap, right? <laughs> exactly. On the African continent I used for years and was introduced to Europe. It's interesting. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing how the they, they marketing switches. Yeah. And I think I mentioned that in the last post. I was like, if Africans don't figure out who they are, or even African-Americans, instead of being mad at this movie, sit down, watch the movie, That's understand right. it, and get right. what you want to get from it to understand your heritage and your background. Because yes, it's a nasty history that your people were sold and the people that sold you looked like you, but yeah. who, he who has never seen, let him throw the first stone, right? Yeah. So let's go with that mentality and then see if you understand where you come from, you start to change your mindset because you're not a slave. I have been saying this for so many years. You're not a slave. Your ancestors might have been placed into servitude, but you're not a slave. 
you got to start changing that mindset and start thinking. My ancestors were warriors. My ancestors were fighters. My ancestors were kingdom builders. Am I a kingdom builder or am I going to continue to dwell in the slave mentality? That's right. That's right. That's beautifully said. I want to talk a little bit about the feminism in the woman king. So why don't you start us off? What's your take on that? Uh, Feminism. So I think the thing that I walked away from was there is there is this portrayal, for example, for the African woman that the, uh, the, the black woman in general is the angry black woman. Yeah. So and the angry black woman, the strong black woman, the black woman that can handle her own, she doesn't need help. Um, I think that's the American way of looking at the black woman. And um, it's it's very detrimental, and I've pushed back on that quite a few times to say, I am a strong black woman only because I have to be. I'm not a strong black woman because I don't think men are important. Mm. It's not because I don't want a man in my life. No, I'm a strong black woman because I'm placed in a situation where I have to get up and be strong, or else. I won't have food on the table. Mm-hmm. My family will suffer and things mm-hmm. like that. So mm-hmm. I have no choice but to be a stone black woman. I'm a stone black woman because I, I have to stand up and defend myself because nobody else will defend me as a black woman. Mm-hmm. I, like mm-hmm. when we look at, at women in general, the black woman is always the, the bottom of the barrel of the women group. So mm-hmm. I have to be a strong black woman. I don't want to always be a strong black woman, but I don't have the choice. So um, the portrayal of, and then when, when, when I am becoming a strong black woman in certain situations, I am considered angry. If I'm trying to stand up for myself and all of a sudden I am the angry black woman. I'm no longer the strong black woman that has to fend for herself, that has to take care of her own, that has to hustle, that has to do all of this while trying to stay moral, right? Especially for me as a Christian woman, I'm not gonna go sleep around so that I can have money. I'm not gonna do this. I'm not gonna do these things because I try to carry myself as a Christian woman. And then in that meantime, I have to stand up and fight for myself in certain situations. Once I'm like trying to mm. have my voice and stand up and be that strong woman, all of a sudden I am angry. I'm labeled as angry. So it's, it's, it's a very tricky thing. Yeah. Looking at, at the woman king and look at the Agoji women, I, I, I like where Nawi is going with her thinking. I like where Nawi is going with her mm. thinking. And I like that the woman King was able, uh, 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 Namista was able to have a child because it, yes, she didn't raise the child, but now she knows that having a child doesn't mean you cannot become the woman King, mm-hmm. right? So it kind of just it takes away that whole thing. And at the same time, I like her vulnerability as a woman because society mm. has made it two ways where it's either you're a strong black woman that cannot shed a tear and you have to be tough and be like a man, let me be like a man, or you're just that vulnerable, docile woman that needs to be taken care of and handled with care or else you're going to break. So, but the African woman in general is not like that. It, if growing up in a village, I never saw any docile woman. The docile woman in the village was the one that would not have food at the end of the season. 
So <laughs> you do not want to be a docile woman. You want to go to the farm. You want to take care of the business and take care of your family. Right. And your husband was right there with you. Yeah, there were also husbands that were drunk and the woman had to take care of the home. But there were also husbands that were always there. And side by side by you, you leave and you go to the farm the same time when it was clearing, you clear the farm together, was farming, you farm, you planting plants. Sometimes the women do more on some seasons than the men, but it was a collaboration. Nobody was taking care of you. So being in America and being trying to, 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 to be the woman that I, I, I was raised to be, and sometimes being labeled a uh, 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 angry black woman, mm. eh, it doesn't sit too well with me. But yeah. this movie, I love the movie showing a strong black woman that is still vulnerable. Yeah. So that was my feminist takeaway from that movie. What was yours? Well, one thing that was complicated for me was this code, right? The code that they had as women warriors that they could not have children or they could not have families. And I'm wondering what takeaway that maybe young Black African women might have from the movie. It's, it's complex, right? So they see the example of, you know, Nawi has a romance, obviously, with Malik, right? And Namiska, you know, it's not a romance, but she had a daughter out of a very a traumatic experience. She had a daughter and she she's able to even be close to her daughter. You know, it's... It's almost like the film allows her in her in her decision, right, to keep the baby, to have the honor of having her daughter in her life, you know, not not growing up, but here as part of the Goji. And I think that there there may be some, though, who might come away from the, the film thinking, but what does that mean for women in general, right? And so there's this portrayal that either you have to be a, a woman warrior and have no family, no children, or you can have a family and children, but you cannot be a warrior. So you can be successful and not have a family, or you can have a family, but not be successful, right? And I'm wondering, is that something that you feel young women might struggle with? Right, it is possible. Like it's it's something that I didn't think of, which I think it's a really solid point right there. It's a very solid point, and which is another reason why they have to make a number two for this film. Yeah. <laughs> I'll help them write it if they have if they need to. But um, okay, I'm a 45 year old woman with a doctorate degree, run a nonprofit cross continentally done a lot of good for, for, for my village and my, my siblings, but I don't have kids. You could argue that I have mm. sacrificed mm. having kids mm. for all of mm. them, right? But at the same time, that was never my desire. It was yeah. never because I didn't want to. It was never because I have not been trying to, 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 to meet people and get married. But the thing is, the way I'm designed is work, 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 be a strong woman at the same time. So somehow trying to be the woman king in this sense, in this context, has cost me, even though that's not my choice. That's not what I want. That's right. So it it is important that young girls don't take away, oh, I need to be accomplished, so I need to give up. Yeah. 
marriage and give up kids because yeah. there's still a lot of African women that have raised kids. Like my sister, my sister raised kids. She has a, she she just graduated with her with her, her master's in nursing, but she's raised kids mm. and had a very successful family yeah. and just adopted my sister's or the late sister's kids. Mm. So it's doable for an African woman to be very accomplished at the same time why having a family and a man and and being respectful and yeah. and doing going through the traditional uh, uh marriage roles that that the african society still holds on to very much yeah. so i i think that in the next movie it will be very important to highlight that for the african girl yeah. so that the african girl doesn't take a different pathway thinking because movie does define how yeah. people, young people think and what they take away That's right. That's so right. that narrative needs to be shifted mm. so kids don't go i want to be an agoje now i'm going to be an agoje in my field and i don't need anything else no it's not fulfilling yeah. if i am a single woman but if i had if i had my wish through life yeah. i would be married with kids yeah i guess as a man <clears throat> the question i have is why do men get to have successful careers and a family? And that's never, you never have to make that choice, right? It's never a struggle for a man to think I can have a family and I can have a successful career. Why does it have to be that way for women? And does this film show that dichotomy between expectations for men and expectations for women? Um, it doesn't. So I don't think this, the film does a good job in showing that dichotomy. But at the same time, we are dealing with, the story is centered around the Agoji, yeah. right? These women that were, that they did sacrifices yeah. because they wanted to be, uh, uh, to be the home of, to be armies, right? The, the, the king actually decided that they were stronger and they needed to be in the front. It wasn't necessarily, it, it's, it, it was fated that way. It wasn't necessarily they woke up one day and decided they we're gonna form an army. They just became really good guards of the, the family when the men were going to war and dying and, and, and running away because they didn't wanna die. The women were fearless. That's why they stayed in the mm. forefront mm. of the war. It's their fearlessness that allowed the king to make them an army unit and to make them the forefront of the war. It wasn't because they, it was, they just woke up and decided to, 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 to mm -hmm. in and subscribe in the army. Yeah. So looking at that from that perspective, you, you see um, what I see is that it was a situation, like I said, I am a strong black woman, not because I want to be, because I want to, yeah. it's because I have to. They became agogis, mm -hmm. not necessarily because they wanted to become agogis, mm -hmm. because they mm -hmm. had to become agogis. Mm -hmm. And then the African women actually, it's like, I feel like Christianity brought a different kind of female role where the mm -hmm. woman was the homemaker, the woman was the childbearer, the woman. So it described a role of a woman that was not existing pre-Christianity pre on the continent. Well, interesting. Because just looking back at my tribe, my mother wakes up five in the morning, 
get breakfast. If breakfast is usually leftover, just say that we're not going to school. That Take it a day that is not a school day. Take school out of it. Take any Sunday church out of it. Let's take church Christianity and school education out of it. Normal life in the village. The women and the men, they wake up, they get ready. Whatever was the leftovers from last night is breakfast. You take that, either you eat that at home and then you go to the farm or you eat that in the, you take that to the farm and then you start to work. And at a certain point in the day, you sit down and you eat it. Mm-hmm. And you usually will sit down as a family, you eat it. And then you go back to work. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point during the day, you find things around the farm and you eat it again. And you continue to work until towards dusk. When it's time to go, you harvest what you're gonna cook for dinner and mm-hmm. then you take it home. The man carries the firewood. Mm. The woman carries whatever she needs to carry for cooking that day. Mm. Or the man sometimes will leave the woman and go hunting so that they can have a little bit of meat when they go back home. Mm. And then when they get Mm. home, they do the evening chores at home. They cook the dinners, they eat, they Mm. sleep, they repeat. And then you have a traditional Sunday. On that traditional Sunday, nobody goes to work. It's Mm. a day for rest. It's mm. a day where you, you do chores around the house. And then you have a market day. You go to the farm on a market day, but most market days, the women will take the crops that they have to the farm. Sometimes with their husbands, they will take their harvest to the farm so that they can trade. Mm. So that's this, the average life, mm. pre-education, pre-everything. Yeah. Right? So these women were never women that, will sit at home and do nothing and just wait for their husbands to provide. That is a complete structure that is brought about by a Western system. Mm -hmm. It's not an African system. Mm -hmm. The African woman was always industrious. And that's why for me, it it doesn't seem strange to see a woman army. Not at all. To me, it's like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, why is it just now coming up? Because right. the, my storyline for a woman king, for a woman, for a woman army, a woman warrior, yeah. my visualization was always the same thing. It was a hole. My weapon is not a, a machete, not a cutlass. It was a hole because in my tribe, the women carry a hole. I was like, the hole, the woman takes the hole. She has that on the part of the hole. Mm. If there is a snake in the farm while she's working, bam, 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 the under part of the hole. Mm. So the under part of her hole is a weapon. Mm. it's not just the the sharp part is where she digs Mm -hmm. this part is a weapon Mm. you do things with it so (laughs) my my whole story was going to be about a woman like that and how how she she protects and provides for her family even with her man being part of it because if her man was out hunting and she was on the farm and something came to attack her she had to defend herself i've watched my mom defend herself at knife point from a young man and actually took away the knife took away the person's stick yeah that's a warrior woman to me wow so i have never known a docile african woman it is the (laughs) west today i see the young girls in africa Mm. sitting down going oh this is a good life my husband went to work and they're going to bring me this this oh such a great life i was like (laughs) This is not the African girl. You're yeah. not supposed to do that. You're supposed to be industrious. Why are you sitting yeah. at home kicking your feet at the thing? 
being proud for that your husband <laughs> is going to bring back meals. No. <laughs> so I think this gets at what we were talking about a few minutes ago in yeah. terms of, you know, revisiting what is the African identity, you know, and that it should be something that is informed by its complicated history with the West and with yes. Europe, but it yes. should not be beholden to it. It should not be tied um, unconsciously to that past that creates this hierarchy of white is best and, and anything below white is worse. <clears throat> and I think that this vision of what a woman could be in the African context is so, so beautiful. I mean, I'm just hearing you talk about what your, you know, what, what, what role model your mother was to you and how that shaped who you are and your view of yourself and your perspective and identity. And I think that that could serve as a starting point, at least, mm -hmm. for us to have this conversation about what does it mean, right? What does it mean to be African um, or from any culture, in fact, you know, and to, to reinvest in what makes us who we are. And that's not necessarily what other people want us to be, what other people yes. say that we are. Um, and we are, we don't need outsiders to be our heroes. You know, we, we can, be, we, we have our own heroes in our own families, in our own cultures, in our own histories. And we need to recognize that. I mean, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about Black Adam, yes, but we, yes. we, need to, we need to recognize that we have our own heroes, even if they're not perfect. Yes. We have our own heroes and that there's a place for us to go to to start this conversation about who we are and our identity. And yeah. I agree. And that willingness to to actually not just we, we recognize it and we really have that willingness to go back and start taking it on. Yeah. Yeah, Black Adam was a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> for that reason. <laughs> You're gonna make mistakes as you try yeah. to reclaim your heroes and your identity. That's right. But don't give yeah. up. <laughs> I think that's a good conclusion to our to our dialogue today. <laughs> very nice. Well, this was very um, this was beneficial for me. I really enjoyed the conversation. I've learned so much, and um, I didn't think that I would get so much out of this film. Um, I thought it was going to be a good film, but yeah. it's it's there's so many layers this film, and I think speaking with someone who's an expert on this has really been something that's been eye-opening to me and it's helped me to understand better. So thank you. Right. And thank you for bringing a diverse perspective because it's like sometimes when I sit on the mic and I'm talking to myself and brainstorming about this, I don't dig as deep, you know, mm -hmm. like talking to somebody else that understands culture I've read about Africa and broadly really helps go deep, really. I'm really so yes, thank you too.